morning. It's September 1st, 2019, and you're listening to Breakfast Tales. I'm Andre. And I am Isaac, Ooh. filling in for Vivian. Who's this? Who I, are you, Isaac? I, what are you doing in our closet? I am Andre's brother. What? I have a brother? I think you have a couple brothers. Actually, I have a few brothers. Oh, right, 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 right. You have a few brothers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Isaac's filling in. We're doing all kinds of wacky stuff this week. It's not Saturday. It's Sunday. It's not breakfast. It's actually past dinner. And we got our first guest star in our closet. Woo! Yep. Um, but a funny thing that our listeners, I guess, is just our mom. So she probably knows, but... <laughs> Most of the other people that may or may not listen to this wouldn't know is that Isaac actually is a lawyer, but before he became a lawyer, he went to undergrad as a engineering student. Woo! Engineering! But then he left. So I wanted to talk about what about engineering made you quit? So... That was kind of a long and complicated story. So when I first started undergrad, it was with the intention of getting a degree in mechanical engineering. And when I initially started, um, I started at a sister school to the University of Texas. I went to the University of Texas at San Antonio under a program called the CAP program, which essentially meant that I would go to the University of Texas at San Antonio, uh, study there for a year, and if my grades were good enough, I could transfer to the University of Texas at Austin, either in the Natural Sciences program or the Liberal Arts program. If I wanted to apply to the Mechanical Engineering program, I could do so, but I was not guaranteed a transfer spot. So at the end of my first year, uh, I did fairly well at the University of Texas at San Antonio, UTSA for short. So I managed to get into the mechanical engineering program. Uh, the classes I took at UTSA were, I guess, on the easier side. Um, they didn't really dive into the actual meat and potatoes of mechanical engineering. Now, when I got to UT, it was kind of a a little bit of an adjustment period my first semester. And um, it, it was a little bit tougher than I anticipated, but uh, I think one of the main challenges for me was the, I guess the overall subject matter wasn't that interesting to me. Um, you know, I was always interested in seeing how things worked, but not to the degree of wanting to be my entire life. So I guess the main challenge for me was finding the actual motivation to to do the work. And if you don't have the motivation to do it, then you're not going to make it. And I, I very quickly figured that out after the end of my second year. Right. So... You just didn't have the passion to actually go that deep into it? That's pretty much what happened. Um, I was always very interested in it, but only only to a superficial degree. Like, you know how some people, they're like, oh, I'm really into food and all this other stuff. But, 
you know, they don't really dive into the nitty gritty of of how everything works, how, you know, a restaurant is run, how everything uh, breaks down. It's just, uh, oh, yeah, I like the way food tastes. I don't like, I don't really appreciate what actually goes into making my meal. Right. You're just all about the, the final product. Yeah. And that's kind of how it was for me. Um, you know, I liked seeing how things worked on kind of a macro scale, uh, at least from a scientific perspective. Um, you know, with my new career, that's not so much the case. I'm, I'm definitely into the, the nitty gritty and the minutia. Right. So I guess since we're an engineering podcast, I wanted to ask, since you're outside of the profession, but you interact with me and Vivian all the time and you see all of our ridiculous nerdiness and all that entails, what, what is your thought on what engineers are like? Oh man. Um, so I think I kind of have, uh, the perspective I think you do of lawyers. So the, uh, <laughs> this is not going to be good. <laughs> So the uh, the one story I tell about uh, Andre appreciating lawyers is I invited Andre and Vivian to a wine tasting event that one of the firms I worked at, uh, they bought a table to, kind of a charity event. So I invited Andre, Vivian, uh, two of my other friends, and then a bunch of different lawyer friends. So we're all standing around, we're talking about law stuff. Um, you know, filing motions, doing all this other stuff. And some one of us made a ridiculous joke where it was something like, and then I filed this and said, suck it. And Andre told me after the fact that when someone said that, he just said, oh my God, you are such nerds and this is so boring. And that's kind of how I feel about uh, – you and Vivian's conversation sometimes where you're talking about, and then I compiled it and then everything broke. And then I had to comment it out. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Hey, you should, you should actually know a lot of this stuff. Okay. I do. I, I do know more than the average person. And I do, I can't appreciate what commenting something out means, but really come on, man. Yeah. Well, one interesting thing that um, we've kind of had where we've, we've interacted between our two professions is that, um, occasionally I've helped you with some of your law work, not in terms of like being a lawyer, but in developing technology for you. Right. Oh yeah. Very much so. So one, uh, one cool anecdote that, uh, you know, I share a lot with some of my colleagues, uh, this one time in law school, I was working on editing a paper. I was, uh, an articles editor editor on my law review. And as part of that process, it goes through a, a citation checking and you kind of have to organize it in a particular way. And if you were to do it manually, uh, this cita these citations can take um, you know, upwards of 15, 20, 30 minutes each. And there are hundreds of citations per paper. So what I had Andre do was write a very simple program to essentially take in the data that I cut into it and then organize it properly and then spit it out in the right order. So your basic sort function, I guess. Um, so it cut down a ton of work. It basically automated the process. I submitted it. 
it was perfect obviously um and i told my my uh editor-in-chief kind of what happened and he was like oh my god that's brilliant that's so smart how did you do that blah 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 and uh i actually ran into him once uh at the courthouse a couple months after that fact and uh he was telling one of his colleagues this is Isaac. He's super smart. He wrote this program to sort all this stuff. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that, you know, it was Andre who did it, but you know, it's kind of, kind of weird how old school law is. We rely on books and stuff a lot. And, you know, with the newer technologies, you can do a lot of, a lot more powerful searches and organization, but a lot of the old school lawyers aren't a huge fan of it. And some, even some of the newer lawyers and attorneys, they don't really understand uh, how powerful these search tools can be. Um, for example, we use uh, a program called Westlaw or LexisNexis. And what you can do with that is use Boolean search terms. It's very powerful, but you have to know how to use them. Almost no attorneys know how to use that. They're all natural language searches. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things that I always think about, especially like because we've had this one um, pretty good interaction where nowadays when you hear about like engineering and uh, programming and automation, you hear all these stories about, oh, the robots are coming to take our jobs. They're going to automate things. They're going to make... They're gonna take they're gonna take work away from humans that like people need to live and work right, but imagine this simple program that I wrote for Isaac that that was automation and that took 16, 16 plus hours of work right. It stole that from some human Isaac, but did Isaac want to do that work? Did doing that work actually be is that fulfilling? Is that actually useful work? Not really right. It's taking the tedious work from people that don't want to do it. And it just makes your life simpler so you can do more meaningful real work. So we're actually hitting a a very interesting turning point in the legal profession as well. Um, With the advent of AI and everything like that, smarter searches. So we have a process called the discovery process. And what that means is basically each side of a lawsuit will trade information. And what has happened in the past is uh, one side will say, yeah, I'm legally required to turn over these documents, but I'm not going to make it easy on you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take literally a library full of information and just dump it on you. And you have roughly 30 days to go through all of it. And you have to hire a bunch of either associates or outside people to go through and sort the information, find what's relevant, categorize it, and then kind of rank it on importance. So with the new programs, um, you know, you can find more intelligent, I guess, more intelligent approaches to uh, acquiring that information and categorizing it. And I guess it does have some attorneys worried, but realistically it's a lot of the grunt work that no one really wanted to do um it was just busy work that you know we build clients for but it's not really an effective use of our time we would typically um especially for the bigger cases we would farm it out to contract attorneys and pay them 
you know, $15, $30 an hour to just go through mind-numbing amounts of documents for no good reason other than the fact that, you know, one attorney just wanted to be deliberately unhelpful, which he's legally allowed to do, by the way. Right. Um, but so that that's like from an engineering side um, in terms of like a pro, I'm pro automation, right? I, 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 I think that it's good that we can save a lot of time and effort in basically anything that we put to it. But like in this case, basically that means people will get charged less to do the same work, right? To, to, to have the same kind of service given to you, you get charged less money, right? So that means maybe in the future, if the costs aren't so high, people aren't afraid to use lawyers, right? Because that's one of the huge things about using lawyers that you always hear about, like, oh, this horrible thing happened and you could sue them. But since it costs so much money, nobody wants to go through that process. So they just give up and they just let it slide. And I mean, that's okay sometimes, but for a lot of people, that means the system is really only helping the people that can afford it, right? Right. And there are a couple other, I guess, startups out there challenging the traditional role of lawyers. Um, I know of a system, I think out in California, that they're piloting. It's essentially an online automated system where you just fill in some information and it automatically submits a challenge to a parking ticket or a speeding ticket. Ordinarily, you kind of have to show up, uh, go in front of a judge, file some paperwork, or hire an attorney to do all of those things. What this kind of system has done is automate some of the process. It's not a substitute for an actual attorney if, you know, things get contentious, but it does take a lot of the, I guess, the the grunt work out of the initial lead up to the challenge. Right. So, like, in general, I'd say that having the tools is not a bad idea, right? Because you 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 gain so much more productivity, especially like for lawyers who goes to law school for X amount of years and X amount of money to like just mindlessly flip pages. Nobody wants to do that. So, Right. It's definitely probably the worst part of the job in terms of, uh, you know, being actually productive. Um, you know, we kind of joke, uh, this is kind of a, a joke on the down low within the profession, but we definitely joke that discovery is where you make all the money because one, you have fights over what to actually disclose. And then two, you have to spend a lot of time coming through all of the information in order to find what's actually relevant and useful. Right. So it's kind of, it's really interesting in terms of like from an outsider kind of point of view, because it, it's a, a problem made by people that's solved by people. But the whole point of it is that both sides are trying to waste time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the whole point of the discovery process in theory is so that you know, justice will prevail so that we can find the truth so that, you know, one side doesn't have an unfair advantage over the other. What happens in reality is, you know, it's a little bit different. It plays out a little bit differently. I mean, well, very differently. Welcome to the law. Yeah. I've learned throughout my experience with dealing with Isaac and his lawyerness that Nothing really makes any sort of sense. It doesn't have to work the way you expect things to work. It's just, 
I mean, I guess that's true with an engineering profession. Sometimes we just wave our hands. You go, Isaac, shut up, press the button. It works. (laughs) And they'd be like, okay, I guess it works if I press the button. Yeah. And that's definitely how it works. It's, it's actually kind of funny because, you know, I work in a, in an office full of lawyers and, uh, you know, I'm the tech specialist and I'm in wildly over my head. Everyone comes to me for everything. They're like, Isaac, my computer broke. Like, did you turn it off and on again? Because that usually works. And they're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. See, that's one of the interesting things that I, I've I've learned. Because so you, Isaac, you're a lawyer. And then one of our other brothers, Long, he's he's like a nurse anesthetist. I don't I'm not saying it again. But anyways, <laughs> um, both of you guys, you're not engineers. You don't know exactly how all these components and things work. But you're computer literate enough, right, that you can solve most everyday problems. But then there's people that like our peers, right? Same age, younger, they should, you would think they would be kind of similar to us, right? They would have the same computer fluency, but it's just not that way. Like there's so many people that just have no idea what they're doing with computers. And it's just mind boggling to me. I think, I think uh, part of the reason for that is just the environment that you and I grew up in. You know, we grew up with engineering parents, so we had access to computers fairly early on. So I think I think for the most part that we have a slightly unique perspective. I think if you were to look at a generation after us that they're roughly the same computer literacy as us. I actually would disagree with that. Oh yeah? <laughs> I don't think people younger than us actually know any more about computers than us. They know about how to click the buttons, but they don't know <laughs> anything about like anything behind that level right yeah i guess you guys have gotten a lot more user-friendly and more intuitive so it's like babies know how to use touch screens nowadays and grandparents don't know how to use touch screens but yeah, i guess that yeah you got a point you got a point there yeah because there's still a lot of people that have been working with computers for a long time since the beginning of computers like like imagine someone like our dad where he's been working on computers since they first started becoming like actually useful to people and if you watch him use a computer you're just going to bang your head on the table (laughs) right it's it's not (laughs) it's not a smooth experience for him that's very true that's very true yeah so i mean i see it a lot at my work because i still work with older people and they're using computers but it's like you don't have to right click and click copy you don't have to right click (laughs) and click paste yeah you can just use the shortcuts yeah, shortcuts are are key. Yeah, that's one of those things where you're like hovering over somebody's shoulder and you're like, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. You're so slow. What are you doing? But I imagine that's more prevalent in the lawyer community. Yeah, very much so. Um, and you kind of see it a lot with the adoption of new technologies. Um, so I work for a state agency and um, one of the things that we're looking at is uh, communication by email. And uh, you would think that, you know, this is common sense. You can just communicate by email, blah, 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 blah. State rules actually require either certified mail or faxes. That's pretty much the only way to submit information to our agency. There are a couple spots where you can submit information by email, but there are a bunch of different you know, federal rules and regulations around all of that. So 
Is this normal people submitting information to you? That's the thing. Uh, it can be normal people, but it also could be regulated entities. So it's kind of a weird mishmash of of what new technologies we find acceptable. So right now it's certified mail and faxes that are the standard accepted technologies. Submitting something by email, it's completely at the whims of whatever state agency or whatever federal agency that uh, you're dealing with. So uh, integrating technology into the legal profession has always been a very slow and a very painful process. And you kind of see that in uh, the way laws are actually written as well. Yeah, that's what, that's what I, I kind of know this from what you've talked about before, but it's like, the pace at which the laws are being made around technology are so, so lagged behind like where we actually are that it's amazing that anything is even possibly regulated. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, one of the things you can even look at is wire fraud. I mean, people haven't used a telegram or anything like that in years, 50 years or something like that. Hundreds of years. And well, not hundreds, obviously, but for the better part of a century, no one has used a telegram, but we still call it fraud by wire or wire fraud. We've just expanded the definition to incorporate newer, different technologies, but it's always a slow uh, integration process. Yeah. One of the things that I worry about is that people kind of are actively pushing against technology, pushing back going backwards against technology and especially like the people that know what they're talking about. So one big thing that I always worry about is with um, crypt cryptography and you hear all these news stories where all the senators and whatever are saying, Oh, we just want a secure backdoor to unlock the the thing, right? We, we want to be able to unencrypt anything we want to unencrypt, but just us, just the government, you know, just we're, it'll be fine. We're the only people that would be able to do that. And Everyone is saying, no, that's not how it works. Like, that's not how it works. If, if somebody finds that key, you're screwed. So going back to a little bit what you said earlier where, you know, people are dad's age, you know, watching them interact with technology, it's like beating your head against the wall. Yeah, those people are in charge of making our laws. And, um, you know, some of them obviously very bright individuals and they have great staffs. Others... You know, they rely on outside uh, outside influences who might be pushing an agenda. So it kind of just depends on uh, the actual influence and who is pushing an agenda. But, uh, yeah, I agree. There are some concerns about, uh, you know, technologies and mandating backdoors because uh, the moment you you have a designed weakness in security... Uh, you've essentially given up that security, right? Because it doesn't even matter. So, uh, if you just if you think for just a moment, maybe for we made this beautiful, wonderful system that only the government has access to, right? Nobody could ever possibly get get through this this same backdoor that the government is using. How often has the government been hacked? That's that's a very good point. Um, <laughs> What I typically like to, to view it as or analogize it to is, you know, what's the most secure thing? Would it be just, you know, you link some chain together and then you weld it shut or you have a lock on it? Obviously, the lock has some weakness and it's designed to be gotten into. It's less secure than 
you know, something that's welded shut. So it, it's kind of the same principle. If you design something with a, like a designed weakness in, in it, uh, that's designed for access, you're obviously you're going to be less secure. All right. That's, that's why I, I'm, I'm always concerned about these kinds of weird policy decisions that people that don't really know what they're talking about are trying to make. And it happens all the time, especially, especially with whatever hot commodity technology is, is being spouted at any given moment. Right. So like Bitcoin, people are trying to, to limit and do stuff with blockchains, but it's like, people don't realize that blockchain and Bitcoin are two separate things. They think they're one and the same technology. <laughs> and most people don't know that blockchain is just the underlying technology, right? And Bitcoin is just a usage of that technology. Right. Well, um, you know, one of the one of the real concerns though is, you know, how do we balance uh, you know, your right to privacy with uh, the right to search and seizure. So under the Fourth Amendment, you know, there is uh, the government has the right to search and seize things, but only pursuant to a warrant. Now, there is a legitimate government interest in, you know, searching out and finding evidence for crimes. Uh, but balanced against that, there is the requirement for a warrant. So there is kind of a we are hitting a a very interesting, I guess, intersection of, of law and technology where, uh, you know, there are competing interests in the right to privacy versus the right to, um, the government's right to, to finding evidence of crimes. Uh, I always err on the side of the right to privacy as a citizen, especially because, you know, we have a constitution designed specifically to protect all of our rights, but, you know, I'm just one person. No, you're a person with a microphone. <laughs> and so you have a voice. That's true. I do have a voice. Who's listening though? That's the question. Eh, we'll find out one day, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But, um, I think that's probably about all the time we have for today. Um, tonight, cause it actually is night. <laughs> um, but I want to thank you. Our very first guest host. Glad to be here. It was a lot of fun. How's our setup? Nice. It's very professional looking, yeah, honestly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Having your face painted on a box. No, 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 no. Paint right the, paint the, paint oh, the sure, word sorry, picture. Sorry, sorry, there's, sorry. Uh, there's glass chandeliers. There's a chandelier. There's champagne. a nice tea set. Uh, yeah, I think, is that Earl Grey? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. So if anyone out there wants to be a guest host and isn't weird, then leave us a message on our Twitter. We're btails underscore podcast. Um, I guess thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Oh, and standard disclaimer, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just an individual. The views I expressed are not representative of my employer. Yeah. Same, I guess. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.